Well, here it is. The next episode of Aussie Ride Chair, episode number 35. And this one is just a little bit different. It's a little bit special. Well, I think it is. It's my story. I have a lot of people saying to me wherever I come from, how to get to be where I am today. What's the journey been like? So a fabulous friend of mine, Hugh Rimmington, got in the car just before the current COVID outbreak here in New South Wales and interviewed me. That's not my full story. There's a few gaps missing and a few bits and pieces that will probably never be told, but the crux of it is there. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm a very lucky guy, that's for sure. I certainly do appreciate where I am today, my beautiful girls, my friends, and the opportunities that have come my way. So without further ado, episode 35 is my story, my life story. I hope you enjoy it. Hi. My name's Christian, and this is Aussie Rideshare. I quit my corporate job so I could spend more time with my amazing daughters and have incredible chats with regular people here in Sydney. Because life's too short not to do something you love. Okay, well, I've just pulled up here at Channel 10 slash Nova, and I think I can see Hugh walking towards me. Yeah, he's got that. That's the gait that he has. It's just a very recognisable. It's an amble. The glasses, the hairstyle, that is Hugh <clears throat> to a T. And here we go. My story for what it's worth. A bit nervous, but off we go. Might be a chat. Front? Yeah, absolutely. How are you, mate? Not rattling and carrying on. I'm good, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you, matey. But I was just saying that so this is the tables are being turned a little bit. Mm. I'm sure you've interviewed a few more important people in your time. But right now, I guess it's my time in the make, sun. You make me nervous. Mate, I'm making myself nervous. <laughs> and I don't get nervous. I really don't. But anyway, rightio. Let's kick it off, I guess. I'll, well, I'll leave it in your hands and we'll see where it lands. Now, I'm, I'm intrigued because I've known you for a few years, Christian. And I kind of have a little, a little sense of your past, but not a very complete sense. So why don't I start at the beginning? <laughs> Where were you born? Uh, it looks like I was born in Frankston, Victoria in 1971. Uh, and my brother was born in 73. So we grew up in Frankston uh, and we lived there for the first half a dozen years of my life anyway. Um, and it, it's 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 funny because I've been I've been sort of processing what I what I did over the last you know a few hours knowing that I was going to catch up with you, and you just remember things. Mm. And look, I was adopted when I was six with my brother. We were kept together, and my natural mother and my adoptive mother, their fathers were brothers. So it was like the aunt was taking guardianship of the kids. And look, my, my natural father was in the in the navy. He was an alcoholic, unfortunately, quite a quite a violent man. And uh, just before, let, let me let me stop you there because there's a bit there to to <laughs> unpack just to start. So you were adopted at the age of six. Yeah. Frankston in the 1970s, pretty much like a sort of a uh, ideal Australian suburban out. Upbringing, I would have thought. Oh, it was from a from a you know five and six year olds perspective, uh, we grew up in a very big house, a two story house in Frankston, uh, with my with my natural mother and father. He was in the navy, so he spent quite a bit of time away. Um, but yeah, look, our childhood up to that point, you know, I mean, there were things that you know your kids would do these days, and which would be unheard of. Things like you know climbing out of windows and jumping off balconies onto the roof of the garage, you know, that just sort of stuff doesn't happen these days. Um, you know, riding your bikes down a, a, a parking garage out onto the main street. In fact, my father was coming home from work and my brother and I came shooting out of this parking garage and he happened to be the first car at the traffic lights. Um, swept us off the bikes. Some, some, some people might have thought we were being taken, but swept us off the bikes, put the bikes in the, in the car and took us home. But we lived a, you know, relatively good childhood up until the age of six so i want to again just stop stop you at the age of six because it matters you were did you have any inkling 
that you were going to be adopted away from your birth mother? No, it's, uh, actually, that, that's the first time that question's been asked in my life. I had no idea. It was, you know, I'd actually never met my uh, adoptive parents. Um, yes, their family ties were quite uh, quite strong with the, the uh, fathers, you know, the, my mum and my adoptive mums, uh, their fathers being brothers. That those family ties are quite strong in the sense of where the family uh, was, but they didn't really socialise a lot because there was a, a bit of a divide between the two brothers. And as a result of that, when we found out, my brother and I found out that we were being taken from our mother, I mean, I had no no concept of what that was meant to look like. I mean, I, uh, I remember distinctly because my adoptive parents lived in South Australia and uh, they came and picked us up um, from a place in Frankston. And my father at this stage, my uh, natural father, had at this stage, he'd been discharged from the Navy just before me turning six, uh, got into a fight after he came out of, the, uh, out of the Navy, put his fist into a pint glass, put it into a guy's face, and then he put a pool cue through the guy. So at that point there, he was in a bit of trouble. And my mother, my natural mother, she just she just couldn't handle two young boys. Um, she wasn't working at that stage, so for her it was quite difficult to to do what she needed to do. That's what I got told. Did, did, did you get any sense that your mother wasn't coping with you? Was that your perception of it as a child? No, I mean, as a six-year-old, I, my understanding was we were living a great life. You know, our dad wasn't there because he was in the Navy, but I don't think we realised that he wasn't there just for not you know, for being in the Navy. And when he got into trouble, um, just before all of the handover happened, my he'd moved out of home. And he went and got me for my birthday, for my sixth birthday. And uh, he took me to a Carlton versus Hawthorne game of football. And he gave me a cake and we sat in the stands. And he just gave me a cake while he sort of socialised with all of his friends. But as it turns out, he was supposed to have taken me back that evening and didn't. So it got to the point where uh, he was living in a unit, my mum was living in the place in Frankston, my brother was there, and the door of the place that he was staying in was kicked down by my natural mother's father. Um, and he said at the time, he said, if you ever touch the kids again, I'll kill you. And that was the grandfather speaking. And did you hear him say that? Uh, that story's been regarded, that was told to me by my grandmother and grandfather a few years later. I don't recall him actually saying that. I do remember there being quite a commotion at the place because uh, at the time I was in bed, um, I was only six years old, but there was quite a commotion. My grandfather took me back to my mother and then a number of weeks after that uh, is when the handover happened in Ballarat. So the, the moment of the handover how much notice did you have that oh, your entire was a, life was going to be turned upside down? It was a day. Like we, and I can't give you the exact day, but let's say it was Friday. By Saturday, my brother and I were in a courthouse in Ballarat um, while the papers were being signed for guardianship. And I remember the judge saying to myself and my brother, he said, so do you know why you boys are here? And at the time I said to the judge, I said, yeah, because our mother doesn't love us. Wow. And that sticks, uh, that sticks pretty strong because, um, you know, as a father of two kids, I don't, I don't know how someone could actually give kids away, but it sort of goes, you know, it gets a bit sort of convoluted a bit later on. But did you think looking back on it now, it was because your mother didn't love you? Oh, Hugh, that's a... Mate, I, so now I'm questioning whether I should have asked you to do this. Um, I'm only saying that in, in jest, mate. I mean, I, I've never been asked that question. I, 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 I just think my mother couldn't cope with two young boys with a her, you know, soon-to-be um, ex-husband um, potentially doing time for a crime of violence you know do you think your mother might have been looking to protect you from the the husband the estranged husband i i i, I think so i do i do think that at times I, I, I it goes around my head a lot like i 
I try and understand it and I just can't sometimes, but I do know that my adoptive parents, they had been trying to have children for a number of years but couldn't have children for whatever reason, whatever uh, medical reason. And I think there was a bit of a, a double-edged sword there where my, my mother at the time was thinking, well, the best way to protect the kids is to get them away from the situation that we're in. And the net result of that was that we were going to a place where, or to a, 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 a family that couldn't have children that would also keep my brother and myself together. And they'd take, they wouldn't take just one, they'd take two of us. So I think if you throw all that into the mix, it meant that at the time, that decision seemed like it was the right one. Your brother was a younger brother? 18 months younger. His name's Shannon. Um, what, what are his memories of this? Well, he was four, so he doesn't remember as much. I mean, we moved, literally, we, you know, let's say it was the Friday again. By the Saturday, we were in the courthouse in Ballarat, and the Sunday, we were in Adelaide. And when we arrived in Adelaide, uh, you know, we arrived into a, a house at Salisbury, which is quite a tough area of South Australia. Um, my dad uh, worked at the West End Southwark Brewery in Thebiton, and unbeknownst to me, which I only found out many years later, only through you know being a part of the life, is that he was an alcoholic as well. Oh my god! So, and look, this is a man that was—he was a big man, and he could drink oh a dozen long necks a night, and did, and did. And you know he would, uh, you know he, he he could drink a lot, but his, you know, so I don't know. Our childhood, when we arrived in Adelaide, my brother's memory is probably not as strong as mine, but he he's gone from one place in Melbourne to you know having mum being there, to then going to another place in Adelaide, where at first they tried to do everything they could to make us fit in, you know, to make us feel welcome. I just want to ask you, you're six years old, you've got your younger brother there with you. Did you feel a sudden burden of responsibility uh, to almost be the man for your younger brother, to protect your younger brother? Was, was it that feeling? Oh, look, again, that's a tough one because prior to us being given to my adoptive parents, uh, there was a transition phase where my mum and dad weren't living in the same house. And my mum used to drop us off at boys' homes for a, a number of days, a week at a time. So my brother and I would end up in these boys' homes in Frankston and the surrounding suburbs, uh, a place where at least if, they, if you dropped them off, you could then go and pick them up a few days later and we'd be looked after. But my grandmother, my natural mum's mother, would sometimes come and get us from these boys' homes because she just didn't agree with the fact that we were being put in these boys' homes. So my natural instinct was to protect my brother. You know, you go into these boys' homes, and they're brutal places. Like, I can remember you, you're in a single bed with, you know, a, a shitty mattress, a blanket, a pillow, um, and it's frightening. You know, the noises that come out of these places uh, are incredible. And I, I, not that I remember the noises as much these days, but when I was younger, I had a lot of trouble sleeping because uh, any noise would wake me up. What kind of noises? Oh, just, you know, other kids yelling. You know, there'd be a lot of kids crying. Um, it, what, these weren't nice boys' homes. These weren't like a little weekend retreat where you go away. You, you literally go in there and it's regimented. You have breakfast at the same time. Uh, you go out and you play in an area. Uh, my brother and I escaped a couple of times where there was a circus across the river. We managed to get across the river and go wandering around the circus until the police turned up and returned us back to the boys' home because they'd been looking for us. Uh, they weren't that uh, happy that we'd gone missing. Um, you know, and, and so you're in a dormitory type of yeah. sleeping arrangement? Yeah, it's like, you know, it would have been there with a dozen other lads. And so um, once the lights were out... The lights were out. Were, 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 did boys come around and and menace other boys? No, not, not that I can remember. All I know is that it was a really tough place to be, and I don't know how many nights I ended up waking up next to my brother. Like, he would creep, creep into bed. You know, he's only four years old. Uh, yeah, look, and, you know, it wasn't the way they just sent one of us away. My mum, she dropped both of us off and she would come back, you know, drop us off on a Friday, come back on a Monday or drop us off on a Monday, come back on a Friday type thing. Um, and, and do you have any idea what your mother was doing well, while she was parking you in the boys' homes? had no idea. I can only I can only guess, but then maybe that's doing a disservice to her. Uh, have you ever, do you have a relationship with your birth mother now? <laughs> um, 
Well, that, that, that's probably a question I can answer a bit later. Yeah. Because she does feature in some small way, obviously because of the close family ties with the, the grandfathers. Um, but yes, yeah, so anyway, we moved to Adelaide. Uh, you know, my dad, my, my uh, adopted dad, he was quite a loud person. So if you ever did anything wrong, you knew about it. And he wasn't the sort of person that would, you know, just speak quietly. He would, you know, he would bellow. And again, because he grew up in an era of the 50s and 60s, uh, and he was brought up by a single parent, and it was his mother. And his, you know, his mother was a, a very strong-armed lady. Uh, the only way he knew to bring up children was the same way. So, did you miss your mother? Oh, like you wouldn't believe. Like, I mean, I don't know how many times we asked the questions, especially I did. And I'm sure, I'm sure Shannon did at times, but I don't know how many times I asked the question, when are we going back home? Because to me, it didn't seem like it was forever. I just thought it was a, we're going away for a while until the point where, you know, you pass a couple of birthdays and then they say, well, look, it, you know, you're not going back. Um, did you miss your father? No, actually I don't, and I, I I often wonder what he looks like. Uh, I did get a phone call a number of years later from him, just out of the blue. When you were how old? Uh, when I was 19, and that was after he had spent a little bit of time in the house with no windows. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that was that was the only only one time that I've spoken to a person that I believe to be my father uh, in the 44 years after since I last saw him. And what did he have to say to you? So at the time I was 19, I was living with a few lads in Adelaide, uh, but he rang up, I was, and a true story here, I was on a Friday night living with uh, three other lads from the, the club that I'd started to play football and cricket at a couple of years prior. And it was a Friday night, and I was watching The Sound of Music ironing one of my best mates to this day Hoops's work shirts because he was going to a 21st and I didn't really know the guys at the 21st because I was new to this group what a good flatmate you were yeah well uh, he did pay me to do it but he was just starting in his career as an accountant and I said look mate I'll stay home I'll knock these over and then I'll meet you guys at the pub later but then about 9.30 I get a phone call and my birth name was uh, Christian James Christian William James and I always answer the phone, Christian Patterson speaking, because Patterson is my, you know, uh, adoptive name. And this person on the other end of the phone says, oh, g'day, Christian, it's Bill. I'm like, Bill? I only knew one Bill, one, one bloke called Bill Millard. You know, the good mate, brother of Andy. <coughs> um, and I, I said, well, sorry, Bill, I said, what are you up to, mate? He said, no, no, it's Bill James. I literally, I think, you know, the whole my whole world just crashed because you don't hear from someone in 13 years and then out of the blue you get a phone call and I said, where are you? And he said, I'm in a phone box around the corner. And I literally dropped the phone, left the iron on, got a pair of jeans on, T-shirt, shoes, jumped the back fence, jumped the back fence and uh, ended up at the Nord Hotel and got absolutely shit-faced. And the guys turned up, that's where I was supposed to be meeting, and the guys turned up about midnight, and I was absolutely gone. I never heard from him again. Did you get shit-faced with him? No, God, no. no, no he, he scared the crap out of me. Like, oh. to, get a, to get a random phone call from a bloke that you haven't heard from in 13 years, it scared the shit out of me. And uh, But that's, a, that's an interesting response. So you didn't actually stop and talk with him at all. As soon as you oh, knew no, who he, he was, you bolted. Yeah, he frightened me. Like, like you know... Because I think the thing that the thing that struck in my memory was the fact that the last time that I had seen him, literally the last time that I had seen him was when the door was being kicked down by my grandfather when I was five, uh, six years old. Wow. So, you know, the stories that I'd heard after that and the fact that he'd gone to, you know, to the house with no windows, um, I was frightened of the man. And I often wonder what I would do now if I cross paths with him and I look at people that I think are roughly his age in the streets and I think I, I say to myself I wonder if I wonder if you are 
So um, you must have been through that 13 years, even if you weren't thinking of him, carrying a fear of him. Oh, I think so. Look, I think that fear was also manifested in my adopted father because, you know, he was, he was a tough man. And the only way that he knew to bring up my brother and myself was through shouting and through violence. And what was the violence? Oh, I mean, he, he, could, he could lift me off the floor with the back of his hand. But again, you know, we, I think in that early stage as well, we, I, I, would, I would back chat to him all the time. You know, he'd say, do this. I'd say, no, I'm not doing it. And it got to the point sometimes where I think I pushed his buttons. But yeah, his violence was, he used to have a leather belt that he worked at the West End Southern Brewery with. And back then they used to carve the words of the, the company in the leather. Yeah. And he would hit, hit, especially me, because I'd always step in front of my brother. And uh, he would hit me with that, that belt until it would leave welts on the body that you could literally, if you were blind, you could read it as braille. Wow. But they were that distinctive. And there was one occasion where I got hit pretty badly the night before, went to school. Uh, at this stage, I was in high school, but uh, turned up for PE. And the teacher said, "Rightio, everybody get changed. And I said, look, I can't do it today. And the teacher said, look, out of all the students in this school, you are the one that gets changed first and is on the, on the field first every day, every time. I said, look, I just can't today. And she said, go and get changed. Anyway, um, I went and got changed, came out in my shorts, my T-shirt, and she saw the welts on the back of my legs. And I went from the, the heels, you know, from the calves all the way up to, my, up to my ass, as it turned out. And she saw those and she said, okay, look, sorry, um, go back, get changed. Ended up in the principal's office. And back then they used to, you know, the disciplining of children was done in a different way where my, my father and mother were called to the school and the police were there and the police said, look, if you're going to discipline your child, just there are better ways to do it. And they, he said, look, I'm terribly sorry. It will never happen again. And we went home. Wow. You know, and that... I, I, as, as I, I have children now that have never, I will never touch my children. They'll be disciplined, absolutely. But these days it's about taking a phone or a tablet off them. Um, I could never lift a hand to my children. They're just, I just, I can't, the, the, the mere thought of it. So you're, you're breaking that, that cycle, that oh. generational baton that gets passed down of violent men. Okay. <laughs> With children, yes, because unfortunately my greatest defence when I was growing up was uh, hurting other people. Unfortunately, Hugh. Hurting in what way? Um, look, if I got into a fight, I never lost a fight, but I think I may have not lost too many fights, but I'll tell you what, I think I've lost a lot of battles. And some of the battles, the biggest battles I've lost are things that hurt the most. Like, you know, the, the fights that I used to get into... Um, yeah, my dad taught me how to fight in between year 11 and 12, but up until year 11, uh, I was a very skinny kid and I was picked on all the time. My brother and I used to get chased home from school. Um, and the problem with that is is that, you know, we would be running away from these kids that would either have bikes or we'd have our bikes and our bikes would be taken and we'd get back home and there'd be all hell to pay because either, you know, things like our... Now, we'd left our bike at the park because we were being chased, but we, we couldn't really articulate that because if we'd said that, then we'd be in trouble. Um, you know, I used to wear clothes that used to get ripped all the time by these kids when they used to pick on us. And getting back home, um, it was expensive to replace these things. Uh, so it became really, 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 my, my defence was my dad said to me in between year 11 and 12, he said, look, you need to learn how to fight. And whilst I didn't like the idea, I started to put a bit of bulk on in between those those sort of six months. Um, and his first way of teaching me how to fight was standing there and he punched me fair and square in the stomach and took the wind out of me. And over the course of the next three or four months, I learned how to defend myself. And then on the first day of year 12, I went into high school and broke the guy's nose of the guy that had been picking on me for five years. God help us. Um... Sport featured as your kind of road out a little bit. Yeah, it did. I mean, I so when I grew up in grew up in uh, in Adelaide, I was living in Salisbury. We lived in Powerful Gardens. We still went to Salisbury Primary, Salisbury High, um, and my outlet was absolutely sport. I mean, I could run like the wind. 
Uh, in fact, I could run bloody fast. The problem was sometimes I'd run that fast, I'd leave my brother behind. Um, only to hear, you know, hear him yelling out that he was being attacked by these lads. Um, but sport, you know, football, AFL, cricket, they were the two, they were the two sports that really gave me two, two things. It actually gave me an avenue to get out of the house at home because it meant I could go to training and I could go and play on the weekends. Uh, and the other one is that I could also vent my anger. Um, so I started playing against men when I was 16. And the first, that was a one and only game that my father came to watch me play. He used to play AFL for Carlton when he was younger. Uh, anyway, he came out to watch me play and I saw him there. He hadn't been to any games before. But I saw him there and I turned to look at him and I got shirt fronted, which means I got knocked out. And that evening, he walked away. Like he didn't come over and see how I was. He walked away. You know, the trainers got me sorted out and what have you. And then he, um, that night, he said to me, "I said, he said, I'll never watch you play sport again because I, the fact that I embarrassed him by the fact that I had been knocked out." And he never did. He never came and watched another game of sport. God, it's brutal, isn't it? It's tough. It's tough. I mean, you know, I. I look at other things as well. I mean, we used to wear like the clothes we used to wear were the cheapest clothes that we could that my mum could find. And my mum, look, there is, I paint a picture that isn't too positive with some of the stuff, but I also try and defend what they did in the sense that they did the best they could with the means that they had. You know, the environment room was pretty tough, and I remember, you know, money was really tight, and. My mum and dad, we used, they, we used to wear, obviously, the school uniform, second-hand school uniforms. But my mum used to buy us desert boots, brown colour, laces, high sides. You'd think they might be fashionable these days, but they certainly weren't back then. But I remember that because I was so active as a sports person at school, they would rip the the seams would come apart. And because I was so frightened about telling my parents that I'd ruined another pair of shoes, I don't know how many nights, and I can't begin to tell you how many nights, I went out to my dad's shed at midnight. Everyone else had gone to bed. Went out to my dad's shed at midnight. And I'd be trying to sew these boots together with a big needle, because he had a big shed full of a lot of tools, like loads of tools. And I remember sewing these boots together with a big, a big darning needle and brown twine through the leather and trying to softly hammer this needle through the leather. You know, there were some teachers at school that saw how bad my shoes were. One of the teachers in tech, tech studies, and he stapled the shoes together, but they only lasted about an hour. Uh, you'd walk and they, you know, the staple would come out of the leather. So we did it tough. Like we, we, yeah, we didn't have a lot of money as a as a family. Um, I remember I used to steal coke bottles from from the neighbours or from people's houses, and we'd go and get a dollar's worth of hot chips from the fish and chip shop and have them before dinner. You know, I mean, our dad. Our dad was tough. I mean, he, he was a brutal man. I mean, I remember, you know, things that scar you or things that put you off things for life. And so it was one of those occasions where he uh, he served up lamb's fry and bacon and the lamb's fry's liver and bacon in a gravy, mashed potato and beans and all the rest of it. And I hated it. I absolutely hated lamb's fry. And on this particular occasion, I, uh, I ate all the bacon, gravy, you know, the mashed potato, the beans. And I kept sneezing the lamb's fry into tissues and putting them in my dressing gown, the pocket of my dressing gown. I remember saying, look, can I be excused from the dinner table? He said, yes. I remember running up to my bedroom and diving underneath my bed and taking out these little bits of tissue paper with lamb's fry on them. Next thing you know, my feet are being dragged well, hands around my feet, and I'm being dragged out from underneath the bed. Little bits of tissue stuck to my fingers. He made me drag the toy box out that I was putting him in, and he went and washed every bit of lamb's fry, recooked it with bacon and gravy, and sat me there and made me eat it. To the point where I was gagging. And 
I just, I, I just can't do that. I just, it upsets me to think that this is the way children were treated. And my children, they eat very healthily. Yes, they eat some junk food at times, but they will never be forced to do anything they don't want to do because I would hate to feel, I would hate for them to feel like I do about my parents. I would hate for them to feel like that about me. I mean, I love my girls. I love the fact that my little one's hand still fits in mine. I love the fact that I get a hug from my eldest daughter. Because I never got that. I never got that as a kid. I tell my kids I love them every single day. I paint a picture that isn't too positive with some of the stuff, but I also try and defend what they did in the sense that they did the best they could with the means that they had. You know, back then, we were living in Salisbury. It wasn't an affluent area. Uh, it was a tough place to, to, to live. Um, you know, two, two things stand out. Absolutely, we had an uh, on top of the ground pool and my brother and I used to put a milk crate next to it and jump in. And he said, if I see you doing that one more time, I'm gonna knock it down. So he goes inside the house and my brother and I go back to the back of the fence where he didn't think he could be seen. And we ran up, jumped on the milk crate into the pool and he came out and he ripped the out of ground pool out of the ground. Like literally put what, it- what, what was his point, was it? It was because we hadn't listened to him. Um, and the other one is which one this is the one that I you know regard to my daughters and they don't believe it but on Christmas Day uh, when I was about nine or ten I've been wanting a bike for a couple of years and on Christmas Day uh, my brother and I used to sneak out and we used to go out and have a look at what was wrapped you know wherever the presents would be in the house we go and have a look at what was wrapped go back and on this particular occasion I didn't I didn't wake up but my brother woke me up in the morning as you get up at six o'clock, whatever it was, and he said, look, um, the presents are in the corner as you go into the kitchen. So when I got up, I didn't look in that corner at all. I just walked into the kitchen and our grandparents were there um, on my uh, adoptive mother's side. And <clears throat> my dad was there and he was, uh, he said, so boys, you know, look here, here are the presents. And I kept averting that corner. I didn't look in that corner until the point where he said, so uh, which one of you got up last night and had a look at the presents? I'm like, I, I didn't. And my brother's like, I didn't. And it turns out this is the year that I actually got a push bike for my birthday, uh, for, for Christmas, sorry. And I remember being sent to my bedroom on Christmas day. And I was there for a couple of hours before my mother walked into the bedroom and said, if you don't apologize to your father for going to look at the presents last night, all the presents are going. So I sat there for another, I don't know, it was another hour, whatever it was, it was a long time, especially in a 10 year old's world. Anyway, I went down to the kitchen. I said, look, you know, I'm sorry. I had to interrupt that conversation, which is just, it makes me feel sick, sick thinking about it. I, had, so I said, look, I, I'm terribly sorry for lying about looking at the presents. Um, I didn't mean to do it. And he said, okay. And he got up and he grabbed the bike from out of the corner, went outside and he chopped it up with an ax. And he said, that's what you get for lying. So there was no there was no bike for Christmas. Did you get a bike? Yeah, a couple of years later. Um, I mean, I just wonder where that level of <clears throat> almost self-abnegating violence comes from, that total destructive, I nihilistic. Think, I think it came from his childhood. You know, they, they grew up in, in, in Victoria. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, actually, mate. I just... It's a tough life, isn't it? Because you do see this, that feel there's this kind of undercurrent of sort of working class Australia in those periods where, you know, maybe they would have, they would have been born in what, the, 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 the pre-war period? Yeah, some the pre-war, some, you know, just slightly post-war. Uh, so, so born to a certain sort of... Regime. Yeah, knowledge of harshness, oh, that absolutely. life's hard during that thing. And, and then they would to pass it on to that level but you know we're talking here about the 1980s by the time you're getting your bike smashed up it just it just seems beyond beyond reason or purpose what, what was your your adoptive mother like what uh, was your relationship there look it's sometimes she'd get in the middle 
but she wasn't the, the, the strongest or biggest of people. And you, again, you don't expect someone to jump in the middle, but she did try and say to my dad at the time, she'd say, look, you know, look, you're going too far. This is too much, they're only boys. Um, but also I think there was that sense from her point of view that she was quite intimidated by him as well. And I, I, I'm sure he's passed on now, uh, but I'm sure she would still say to this day that she wasn't. But just from knowing what happened to myself and my brother, I can't, I can't think of anything else but the fact that she was frightened by uh, the way he, he behaved. He was a brute of a man. Like, he was a very big man. And he was strong, like, ridiculously strong. Um, he just, when he, when he spoke, if you looked at him the wrong way, he would yell and he would use his fists not to my mother, but to my brother and I, and especially myself, because my brother was always that younger person that I would always, if something happened, invariably it was me that was doing it, but if it was him, I'd take the blame. Did you ever see him be violent to your adopted mother? No. No, I can honestly say I didn't. Uh, I know they, you know, they, they, they shouted, everybody shouts at each other, um, but he would come home. That, the problem with working at the brewery back then as well, there, was, there, were, no, there were no drink driving laws. So... He would literally, he'd leave the house at 5.30 in the morning, he'd go to work, and he would come back at 6 o'clock, maybe 4.35, 6, whatever it might be, absolutely charged. Because when you're working at the brewery, you were drinking at the brewery as well. Um, he used to deliver beer to the pubs, and every pub would leave a pint on the bar yeah. after your delivery, so he'd have those. And then when he got home, he'd have a dozen long necks. Okay. I mean, you're talking 750 mils a bottle. Yeah. So, yeah, he you don't was, drink now, do you? I, I hardly do. I mean, there was, I'm not going to lie and say that I haven't had periods in my life where I've been a heavy drinker. In fact, I've probably, if I'm going to be honest, I've been a, you know, to the point of being an alcoholic. Um, one of those binge alcohol drinkers. Um, but now I, I drink non-alcoholic beer and I'll have the odd glass of wine. And it's, that's really to my children, is that my youngest daughter, if I have a glass of wine, she says, Dad, are you not drinking? No, sweetie, I'm stubbing a glass of wine. And I then think about it later, and I think if... I, I mean, I just couldn't do what was done to me, to them. I want to get on to what happened to you, but your brother, what happened to Shannon over his life? So Shannon, uh, he, he was, you know... He, so I was kicked out of home when I was 17 as well. So by in the middle of year 12, I just started playing football at Salisbury. Um... I was in the middle of year 12 and I came home one evening and my father and I had had a, an argument over the course of the previous week and I, he, he, t he would always say go get me another beer and my brother and I had to jump up and get him a beer from the fridge and on this particular week I said no no get it yourself and the beating I took was pretty severe uh, but I just wouldn't do it so he went and got his own beer or mum would get it or Shannon would get it but when I came home from school uh, on one particular afternoon all my bags and plastic bags were packed with my stuff and they were left on the front porch. And I went to go inside the house and my mum said, look, you can't, you're not welcome here. Because you didn't get him a beer. You stood up to him. Well, it, yeah, I guess that was the culmination of many things. So you were 17? 17. And for the second time in your life, at the age of 17, you'd essentially been cut off from your... Family? Your family life as you knew it. Yeah, so... Um, and again, just to take a bit more of a backward step on that, four years prior, my half-sister was born. So my natural, my, my adoptive mum and dad had, you know, as I said, couldn't have children, which is why they took my brother and myself, which is good of them at the time. But then they actually fell pregnant through IVF. Um, so at the age of 17, when I got kicked out, I remember being, ringing a mate at school, a guy called Danny, and I said, Danny, I've got nowhere to go. And he said, mate, we, there's no room here. I said, I understand that. And he put me in touch with one of the other lads at school whose brother owned a place not far from school. When I say not far, it was probably 10 kilometres. And he let me stay at his place rent-free for a couple of months. And I was literally sleeping on a single mattress with no blankets and a pillow without a cover. And I did that for the rest this of is, the year. This, this is in your year 12? My year 12. As a, on a mate's? On a mate's mattress in his spare room. It, um, and your mate was staying with their parents? Yes. Yeah. So I was literally staying with a, a guy that I didn't know, um, who was the brother of a mate, but he let me stay there for a short period of time, literally until I finished year 12. 
and finished year 12 and that was that was that was that but Shannon stayed at the house so they when they kicked me out they kept Shannon there they didn't make him leave again because he'd never been one to argue I mean he, he didn't stand up to anyone which is not a, I mean it's not a bad thing um, only because I stood up in front of him and so look you ask about Shannon and Shannon you know he um, he he was he was bitter all, and he's well he he was bitter for as long as I've known. Um, you know he he and I we didn't speak much, but I used to send him money when I was in the UK years later, after moving out of home when I went to the UK. Um, I would send him money and clothes that I didn't wear and you know things I didn't need. Um, you know, it's still very good quality and, and what have you, but I would send him all these things. And then years later, when I saw him, when I saw, when I sort of caught up with him, uh, I'd have the odd Christmas at home and, uh, he would turn up and he was always bitter. Sadly, he was always bitter. Um, which is a really sad reflection because he was such a, a smart lad. Um... And to be honest, I'm, I, I feel like he was smarter than I ever was, but uh, just never made the most of it. Um, so that we didn't have the relationship that you would like to think that a brother or brothers would have, um, which is why I rely so heavily on the mates that I have here in Sydney and in Adelaide. Um, because they're the ones that have uh, they're the ones that have, have been there. So yeah, sadly for him, uh, you know things didn't work out. I mean, when when they kicked me out, I decided that was then and there that I was gonna I wouldn't speak to him for a, quite a period of time because I just I just it didn't make sense as to how you can kick someone out for being a kid. Yeah. But um, I then found out that they'd sold the house in Adelaide and moved back to Melbourne so they could be closer to family. And I only found that out because I went back to the house oh, maybe two years later. Um, I just thought, you know what, I've just got to go and see how... Because I hadn't spoken to my brother in two years. hadn't seen my sister in two years, my half-sister. And I turned up there and I knocked on the front door and this lady answered the door. I said, oh, look, sorry, I'm sure I've got the right house. She said, yeah, we've been living here for 18 months. Good Lord. Um... But they've moved back to Melbourne and... Yeah, I told you. That it, no. It's funny because it's interesting on one level that uh, they persisted with IVF, which is not an easy task, even though they had two boys that they were looking after. You know, some they still had some, uh, you know, uh, uh, unmet ambition to have kids, which is itself intriguing, but um, for another time, I think. So you were... Um, how was... What, what were you doing? You, you, you so finished year 12. Finished year happened? 12, and I was playing football, as I said, at Pulteney, at, uh, at uh, Salisbury. I was playing football at Salisbury. And the coach of Salisbury at the time, his brother, I had done some work experience. In year 12, you did like a week of work experience. Uh, and I did a week of work experience at his uh, T-shirt shop in Hindley Street in South Australia. And his brother was coaching out at Salisbury. So Tim, who owned the T-shirt shop, said, look, my brother Ian is going out to coach at Pulteney from Salisbury. Why don't you go and train with him during the week? Because I was dry, at that stage, I was riding my push bike from Adelaide to Salisbury, which is about 20 kilometres. And sometimes I'd ride on flat tyres because I couldn't afford to repair the tyres. So I was riding all this way to go to training. And he said, look, why don't you go and train at Pulteney and then you can play at Salisbury on the weekend because that's where you live. Um, but at that stage as well, I've been told I needed to move out of the house that I was living in at the mate's place because, you know, I just, I guess I just wasn't welcome there. Um, so I then started playing or training at Pulteney. Now it was in 1988 and I then never left. And, you know, Pulteney Old Scholars has been the backbone of, uh, of my adult life. So how far, what, what is Pulteney for those who don't know? Pulteney, Pulteney Old Scholars was an old scholar school that uh, was on South Terrace in, in Adelaide and 
across the road were all the sports fields, football, soccer, um, cricket. And I then, that's where I started knocking around with a few of the lads from Poultney. And to this day, those those blokes are life, lifelong mates. I mean, we're talking, you know, like people like James, Richard, Stephen, Andrew, Grants, Jared, um, Craig, uh, Nigel, all these sort of lads just... I don't think they realise the impact of what them taking me on board actually had. So what did they give you that you hadn't been getting? Oh, just friendship. You know, I ended up living with a, a, a number of these lads for a, for a good number of years. In fact, James is my one of my best mates to this day. Um, and Richard and, and Grant, I lived with all these lads and they, they literally got me through some pretty dark times. Because when I moved out of home, that's when, and I talk, and I've only now really started to realise that the whole mental health area, when I was 17, I was trying to find ways that I could end it all. Because I was living, when I first got to Poultney, uh, I was staying, living in the t-shirt shop in the back, one of the three, you know, the print rooms, the paint print room. They had a couple of massive bean bags in an underground area. Um, I would leave that unlocked and go and sleep in that of a night time. Did they know? No. Um, you know, they had a Coke machine that was there that I used to, uh, I knew where the key was so I could open up the back of the old Coke machine. We're talking about the 20 cent Coke machines. And I would take five of the 20 cent pieces out and go and buy a pie for dinner. Um, and then I start, I lived, I got a place in Norwood by myself, which I don't even know to this day how I got this place, but this place was an ex bikey's house and they'd absolutely trashed it. So... Um, at one stage, I couldn't afford to pay for the power, so I was burning the phone books that were in the house of an evening to stay warm. Um, and then I moved in. We, with we a, probably should stop and explain to younger listeners what a phone book is. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. it's one of these big <coughs> books that holds everyone's name and number, you know, as opposed to a mobile phone that holds, you know, everything these days. That's but, very true. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, and so, what were you? So you had the t-shirt shop work, but it obviously wasn't enough to feed you really because, or house you, because you're having to nick 20 cent pieces out the back to go and buy a pie. So how were you able to sustain yourself? So when I started playing footy at Poultney, um, very quickly became mates with those blokes that I mentioned earlier. And a couple of them had just, you know, they were two or three years older than me. And a couple of these other lads like Stephen, um, you know, Billy and all these other blokes said, look, why don't we, you know, why don't we get a place together? And because I was the new guy to the club, and at that stage I was playing some pretty pretty decent football. And, you know, there was a few bucks being thrown about, uh, which is pretty handy by one of the, you know, the guys at the time, the president at the time would throw me a few dollars as well, which, you know, not many people knew about. In fact, I don't know if anybody knew about it. This is a president of the old Pulteneys? Yeah, the old, the Pulteney old scholars. Yep. And, um... You know, I then started, I got a job with one of the lads, a guy called Stephen, who's a, just a cracking bloke. He's a bloke from Wyala. Um, you know, they, uh, they they took me in and I ended up moving in with those guys. Um, and I still had to find my own way. I mean, I got a job as a landscaper and I did that for a number of years. Um, but it still, it wasn't enough to, uh, you know, pay for the food and the rent and what have you. So it's, it, and I did this not, not meaning to at the time, in the sense of not, when I say not meaning to, I didn't want to do it, but having, not having any money, I used to go to Coles and I would take a bag, empty plastic bag into Coles and I would fill it up with food. I'd then go to the counter and say, oh God, sorry, I've forgotten the, the milk. I'd go back and get a litre of milk and I'd pay for the litre of milk and walk out. And then only, you know, 15 years ago, I rang Coles and said, look, I did this 20 years ago. I'm terribly sorry. And the lady said, look, um, look, there's not much we can do. But she said, look, just whatever you think the value of what you took at the time was, because I was doing it on a regular basis just to get by. She said, just make a donation to the charity of your choice and just forget about it, let it go. Well, so uh, the technique intrigues me. So you take a full bag full of shopping. You, know, you take it a bag. I take in a plastic bag, <coughs> one that I'd used from a previous shop, All and right. I would fill it up with you know spaghetti items yeah yeah so then it would look like you'd already paid for it yep and then you and then i'd go i'd get to the counter with a full bag of shopping and go oh god i've forgotten the milk 
Yeah, right. I'd go back and get a litre of milk or whatever it might be, and I'd pay my 50 cents for the litre of milk. Yeah. And I'd walk out with a bag full of shopping. But fruit. that that just that hung on my shoulders for, for a long, long time. Did you ever play uh, senior, uh, first grade, or whatever the phrase is, football? I, I never played at the top flight in AFL. Um, got pretty close, especially when I was younger, when I was out at Salisbury, I was being looked at to play at that stage. But, um, you know, as a kid that was living outside of home, um, I hated where I was. You know, I hated the fact that I'd been kicked out of home. I hated the fact I had no money. Um, I hated the fact I was sleeping on a dirty mattress. Um, so when people said, look, you know, maybe you can change what you do and come and play, that, that meant discipline, which to me, three, three, three trainings a week, I couldn't get, I just couldn't get there. You know, I couldn't ride my bike to all these trainings and then still have to do a job at a t-shirt shop or then become the landscaper or whatever it was at the time. I was a garbage man for three months. Um, well, I had to get up at four, four o'clock in the morning and you know what that's like, but um, not as a garbage man, but you've got to get up at four o'clock and I'd have to ride my bike to the garbage joint, jump on the back of a garbage truck and then do that for eight hours and then ride back home and then go to, it was just all too much. So I just, I don't think I ever fulfilled my greatest potential with AFL especially. Uh, I know my mates would say that I absolutely fulfilled my potential with cricket, which was never getting to the heights they were. <laughs> um, but yeah. So somewhere along the way, something must have clicked into place. Uh, when I was 17, just as I was getting kicked out of home, I, I, I'd been a week out of home, my grandfather gave me a book and I gave that book to you when you got in the car. It was called A Fortunate Life by A.B. Facey. Yep. And I read that book cover to cover over the course of the next week. And I now read that book once a year. And I think that was the book because my grandfather said, uh, through adversity comes reward. And it's something I've stood by for all of time. And, you know, I'm 50 now and I read that book once a year, but that, that bloke went through, Albert Facey went through more adversity than I would ever go through. And even back then I thought, you know what, if things are tough, there's someone out there doing it tougher. And I've not always lived by that because sometimes you get into this mindset where you think you're owed something. Um, and sometimes I've done that, but the majority of the time I'm just like, I've got to make the best that I can with what I've got. And sometimes that's been nothing. So It's true. That, so the Bert Facey book is a young young man who went off and fought. He fought at Gallipoli. I know he fought in the Western Front, didn't he? He did, yeah. In the First World War. Lost his brothers. Lost his brothers and then came back and, and, and sort of went through the Great Depression. Met the love of his life. Yeah, well, he was, he was out... Um, on the dingo fence, wasn't you? Or yep. something like that, riding riding the desiccated areas of Western Australia. Uh, in other words, a man who had great hardship in his life, and yet the book is a very, very grateful book. The title of it carries it all. So, what what was, you know, the lesson of that is that someone else is always doing it tougher and and be stoic and and, no, and enjoy what's good. And what what is the lesson? I don't know. I mean, I I I think I I think I've been bloody lucky, and. You know, some people may think that I haven't been with what I've said so far. Um, but I think, you know, you look at someone like Albert Facey, who was beaten as a child, you know, in the, in the story it gets told about how he got whipped. Um, and there are a lot of parallels with his life to my life. I mean, he, he found the love of his life. Um, you know, I haven't quite done that yet. There's been certain, obviously some dalliances that... Um, Made uh, you 50, the night is still young. Exactly, yeah, that's it. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but you're right. I mean, I've got two amazing daughters that are just the absolute you know, love of my life. Um, they are everything that I do, and they're the reason why I do what I do. But So, so I want to get to, because you were kind of in corporate. You got into sales, and you were, and you were, you were kind of confident swagger essentially to that kind of successful bloke that was that was the the guy that I first met although I think by that stage you were jaded with that life anyway quite possibly um I've I mean I've done a number of things here I mean I as I said I've gone from being um working at a t-shirt shop to a garbage man to a landscaper to a corporate suite manager at the Adelaide Entertainment Centre to work actually then strangely enough got a job back at the brewery where my dad had worked uh he had actually since obviously moved back to melbourne um but i got a reference from him this is a point after a number of years i started talking to my family 
um, only because I wanted to see how Sarah and Shannon were going. Um, Sarah's the half-sister. And I started talking to them, and every now and again, he'd pick up the phone first. And on one particular occasion, he said, you know, what are you doing? I said, oh, look, I'm just looking for work. He said, go and see this guy called John Pentland at the brewery and tell him that I sent you. I turned up the next day, and I said, look, I'm looking for a job. And John, was the manager at the time, he said, oh, mate, there's a list 100 long. Fill out the form and put it at the top, and we'll work our way up to the bottom. He said, so why are you coming here? And I said, well, my old man told me to come here. He said, who was that? And I said, it was Lloyd. He said, right, I'll see you Monday. And he had quite a, obviously had a very good reputation at the brewery, uh, not only for drinking, but he was a very hardworking man. Amazing. But um, I then did five or six years with Scott's Transport at the time, who was uh, the company in charge of the brewery. Uh, from there, I then spent three years in the UK, left in 97 to 2000. And that was pretty amazing because I went across with a guy, a mate called Mark, and look, the work that I've been doing prior to that, whilst I was quite good at maths, finished top of my year in year 12 and maths one, maths two, uh, I didn't have the qualifications. I hadn't gone to university. So look, I borrowed, <laughs> I borrowed a mate CV, James Hoops, and I just put my name on it. And back then, if you could add up, you were, you were highly sought after because the, the financial markets were pretty strong. Ended up getting a job in a couple of contract roles and then finally got a job with uh, with British Telecom. And it was there that I did that job for two and a half years and it was a phenomenal job. Met some of my good mates from the UK, uh, you know, Adam, James, James, there were two Jameses, uh, Will, just some cracking lads. And we used to knock around. I was living in Tunbridge Wells and working in Tunbridge. But it was there that the job that I had, I had to compile all of the data for British Telecom, all of their inventory. And it was quite, not a mundane job, but it was quite, you know, analytical in that sense. And it got to the point where I was talking with one of my colleagues at the time, and we designed a macro that allowed me to push a button in the morning. And then at four o'clock, I could then do a pivot table, send the report to my boss who was on the other side of London. And during the day, I'd go and play golf. Uh, I'd go and have long lunches. And I also would play online Scrabble. And it got to the point where at one stage, I was the third highest ranked online Scrabble player in the UK. And it was an awesome thing because I used to love playing Scrabble. Um, but I was getting paid like 32 quid an hour to do so. So, look, the UK was just a phenomenal time in my life. Um, I was there for three years, met an awesome girl. Uh, she came back to Australia. And, look, you know, that was just one of those periods of my life where, you know, I just had an amazing time, met some amazing people, travelled to some incredible places in the, in the world. And it was just a, just a wonderful time in my life. So I really enjoyed that, then came back to Australia and worked for a, a mate who had a shipping container company and I was the uh, head of logistics for, for that. And that's where I got poached from from uh, from that company by a company called Royal Wolf, uh, a, a lad called Mark. Uh, he was headhunting for a little while, kept knocking on the door. And then finally I said yes, and then came to, uh, came to Sydney in 2003 and have never left. And now we here we are 18 years later, two beautiful kids, um, you know, had a, had a relationship uh, for 10 years that uh, unfortunately broke down. And look, that's just a, one of the vagaries of life, it really is. And, uh, but out of that, got two of the most amazing, most beautiful girls that are my inspiration. And I wouldn't change that for the world. So yeah, look, I'm very lucky in that regard as well, Hugh. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know, I mean, yeah, I, I, I look at what I've done, and I can't complain, mate. I can, I can say there's some some good times, some bad times, and some times I'd rather not go through again. But you wouldn't change it for the world. You really wouldn't. Um, and all the while, the, the guys that I grew up with, all those guys I mentioned earlier, were absolutely the the backbone of me getting through. Um, I spent a number of Christmases with James and his family. Um, 
in fact, I spent probably eight years in a row uh, at his family's place for Christmas. Um, and now I'm probably at the stage after having a you know, 18 months off that I'll probably look to get back into the corporate world in the not too distant future. But you've you've done the Oz Uber. Where did that come from? So the podcast, and it's actually now, it's actually Aussie Rideshare. It was rebranded oh. today. Actually rebranded yeah, today. Congratulations. Thank you. But because um, it's getting a bit bigger than what, uh, what I first expected. But the podcast came about by um, just me chatting to my mates. And I would share stories about the people I had in my car with those guys. And they kept saying to me that I was making the stories up and the podcast was born a year ago by me, um, you know, just sort of saying I want a vehicle to share these stories with. And now they believe all the stories. And, you know, here I am with a podcast that's pretty strong in where it is. I think my dream with the podcast is for it to be something that gets out there and reaches as many people as it possibly can. And I, I really hope that the people that listen to it get something out of it and I know they do because of the feedback and the comments and the messages that I get but it's 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 been a wonderful journey that I've been able to take and I'm taking still and the work with Ben that Ben does in the background has been phenomenal as well which is just it was something that just honestly came out of just a, a discussion over a coffee and me saying I think I I want to do a podcast but I don't know how to do it and I'm truly blessed that the people that get in my car are willing to share their stories and that helps a lot of other people. And, you know, along the, along the way, I get to share little snippets of, of my life with these, with these stories. And I think it's a pretty powerful message, especially in current COVID times, uh, in the mental health area, that if it can help one person, then, you know, I think it's worthwhile. And I think my story just allows me to share to others through the podcast that it's okay so that's that's you know the premise of the podcast is all about sharing these incredible stories you um and that's 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 you know ultimately what i really do hope for mate i really do and so the bit which's missing yeah is you finding your mother so my ex at the time said I needed to call my mother because I knew her name. I know her name and she'd remarried. And I'll finish with a little funny story for you though, Hugh, about how she moved on in her world. But um, my ex at the time, she said, look, you need to call her and let her know that you've had uh, the firstborn, you yeah. know, Marley, and let her know that she's a grandmother. And I rang her because I knew her last name. She'd remarried. I knew what that was. And I rang her and I said... Uh, G'day, Rhonda, it's Christian. And she said, Christian, I don't want to speak to you. And I said, I'm just ringing you to let you know that you have a granddaughter. And she said, Christian, I don't want to speak to you. And this is 13 years ago, so I was 37 at the time, and I hadn't spoken to her in a long, long time. A long, long time. Um, and uh, I'll never speak to her again. Wow. Did she ever have children again? She did. She had a... So in the same year that Sarah, my half-sister to my adoptive parents, was born, my natural mother had met her future husband, and they had a daughter in the same year, in the same month, unbeknownst to each other, and they both started with the letter S. Now, here's the kicker for that one, because my, um, my natural mother, her daughter, of which I'm a half-brother to... Uh, she has now married a guy called Christian <laughs> and do you not think that I every now and again don't laugh at the irony of the fact that she gave one Christian away and now she's had another one out of, out of all the names out of all the people in the world that her daughter would meet yes. it happens to be a guy called Christian so yeah I don't I don't wish her any ill will I just don't I, I, I don't hate anyone like I hate her I think um, a, there's only a couple of others that are close. That's but, a huge statement to make about your own mother. It shows you how, you know, how deeply she failed in that job. You can have some compassion, I guess, for her and whatever her struggles were. But um, yeah, pretty tough. Yeah. 
But, you know, look, I think, I think I'm a bloody lucky bloke here. Look, I'm 50 years old. Um, I think I've lived a life. Uh, I don't think I could be any better a parent than what I am. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know my daughters love me, which is the main thing. Um, everything I do is for them. Look, you know, at some point I'll go back to corporate, I'm sure I'll have to. And I've never wanted anything in my life. I'm always there to help others. And I'm not... I'm not yeah, I'm sure not, are. I'm yeah, not, you sure are. Yeah, I've seen you work around the school. Well, good luck, Christian. It's uh, it's a pleasure riding with you. And um, you're an amazing story. You're an amazing man. And your kids are amazing kids. They are, mate. And I appreciate your time. I really do. Uh, yeah. It's good to chat. Thank you, mate. mate it's I appreciate an amazing that. story. It's a survival story. So well done. You're Thank a good you, man out of, out of the ashes. Thank you, mate. I appreciate it. Well, love to the kids. Yeah, you too, my man. Take care, then. Cheers, buddy. Well, there it is. That's it. That's me. That's my story. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said, there's a lot more in my life story, and it's just a bit of a snippet of the amazing opportunities that I've had and some of the hurdles I've had to go over, some of the crosses I've had to bear. But I don't have any regrets. I can't complain. As I'm recording this right now, I'm heading to the beach for a swim. So I'm pretty bloody lucky. But thanks to everybody that's been rating, reviewing, subscribing, sharing, donating via the Patreon link. All those bits and pieces. I can't thank you enough. It's an amazing journey that I'm on. I do hope I get to share some more stories with you in the coming weeks, months, maybe years. We'll see how we go.